Storytelling typically involves a protagonist, the story's hero versus his or her antagonist. History tends to follow the same literary model, with historians anointing the protagonists that fill the pages of history. But history is a long story, and thus individuals are rarely given enough time and attention to truly flesh them out. For no protagonist of a story is all good, even Harry Potter had some faults. But neither are all antagonists all bad. Revisionist historians are renowned for re-looking at the story that has already been told, but through a new light. Such as that money-grab rewrite of Twilight from the vampire's perspective. I would elaborate more if I could, but just as most history books have ignored Jomo Kenyatta, I have managed to avoid Twilight to the same degree, if not more. Shows and stories are most interesting to me when the protagonist is the antagonist, a hero that can also be viewed as a villain, an opinion that is debatable depending upon which vantage point you start the story at. Shomo Kenyatta is one such story, and it's time to look at the starting point from which he rose to be Kenya's greatest hero, or perhaps its most remarkable villain. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the third episode in a five-part series regarding the father of modern-day Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta. Episode 3, The Kapinguria 6. We have already introduced the star of our series, Jomo Kenyatta. A quick recap of the man that would become the first president of Kenya. He ran away from home to join a Scottish missionary school. This was where he shed his traditional Kikuyu family name, was baptized and circumcised as a teenager. Proving that he had what it took to commit fully to a cause. He eventually took up the name Kenyatta, which is related to the fancy belt that he used to wear. The name would help to hold up his reputation in the coming months. He became heavily involved in politics and eventually rose to the general secretary position for the Kikuyu Central Association. Because of this position, education, and his charisma, he was selected to travel to London to petition Parliament for reparations regarding indigenous land rights from the colonial government. In what would be the most boring years of his story, he was ignored and returned without any land concessions. But he didn't come back empty-handed. His efforts had earned the right for Kenya to set up independent schools for black Africans. He was given a second chance to return to London. This time he was prepared to be ignored and went on to enroll at university. He stayed away from Kenya for the next 15 years gallivanting across Europe. This included spending a year at Moscow State University, where he flirted with communism, but ultimately married the ideology of pan-African nationalism while getting his master's from a London School of Economics. By this point in his life, he already had two wives and two sons, one pair in Kenya 
and one in England, and neither knew anything about the other. But Jomo Kenyatta loved his motherland and it eventually called him home. He returned to the site of Mount Kenya, for which he titled his thesis. World War II had just ended, and the Kenyan people had exhausted their soil and sacrificed their lives in the name of the British Empire. They expected just rewards, quite possibly liberation, but received only a terse thank you from the Queen. Jomo, now at home, gets married a third time, and then within a year was arrested by the British as the supposed leader of Mau Mau, a Kikuyu movement that swore an oath to kill anyone who aided the British in Kenya. If this were a Hollywood screenplay, the audience would have argued that we jumped the shark somewhere along that recap timeline. If Jomo Kenyatta wasn't the mastermind behind the Mau Mau, then why was he targeted? It appears as though the answer is one of pure laziness. Simply put, the British didn't seem to care enough to put forth a serious effort at understanding the Mau Mau. To them, it was a movement to the Kikuyu people, and Jomo Kenyatta was a name that was known to them as a leader of the Kikuyu people. He must either be the leader of Mau Mau, or be able to control his own people. There were some racist elements that went into their assumptions. Namely, that they failed to understand that the Mau Mau movement was an entirely decentralized grassroots movement. The British didn't actually believe that Africans were capable of doing something like that on their own. They felt that there had to be a head of the snake, and Jomo fit the stereotype. He spoke like them, he was educated like them, and he had lived like them. In their minds, the only one capable of creating such an effective movement was someone like them. Ironically, they were correct, as their land policies were the direct cause of the uprising. But Kenyatta didn't do himself any favors along the way. Remember that he did warn of a dangerous explosion that would occur if the British didn't solve the five problems that he identified. Of course, this can also be easily explained as him trying to use a common literary device to put enough pressure on the colonial chief of staff to meet with him. It was also exceptionally vague and took 13 years to come about. Mau Mau did happen to occur shortly after Kenyatta returned to his homeland. Again, this can be chalked up more to the timing around World War II, rather than a Kenyatta-led Grand Master Plan. Once the war broke out, most individuals were forced to bunker down where they were at. Plus, the Kikuyu aided the war effort in their expectation to be rewarded. When they were gifted further repression, their grievances exploded into a state of unchecked violence. Kenyatta was arrested overnight in a pre-planned raid known as Operation Jockscop. He was hooded, forced on a plane, and flown to a distant corner of the land. Governor Evelyn Barring felt that he had the snake in the bag, so to say, and planned for the conflict to only last for three months without its mastermind. 
In reality, the arrest of Jomo Kenyatta was one of the worst things that the British could have done. This was true in both the short and long term. In the short term, Jomo was a conservative politician who spoke out vehemently against violent rebellion. His removal from the stage meant that the voices of those who chose a militant route were amplified. Governor Baring had removed the one person who had been keeping the young militants in check. He also took away the most senior politician, who would have been willing to negotiate an end to the conflict. Over the long term, the Kenyatta arrest allowed him to claim what the British said about him, that he was in fact on the side of the Mau Mau, a key supporter and perhaps leader of the movement, a movement that would eventually drive the British out and install Jomo Kenyatta as the leader of the Free State of Kenya. Baring had signed 183 arrest warrants for the night of October 20th, the operation captured 112 of them, most without incident. The arrest, however, did nothing to stop the Mau Mau momentum, with an oathing ceremony of 500 individuals occurring just two nights later. And then, settler Eric Boyer was slashed to death while bathing just a week later. The publication of Boyer's death only put more pressure on the colonial government to prove that they were on top of the situation. Boyer's neighbors poured gasoline on the situation by revealing that he had been slashed to bits with all the fingers of one hand gone. Turned out that he had been disemboweled after the killing had occurred to the point that bits of his bowels began to slide down the drain. Again, this sensationalization of the incident did no favors for ending the conflict. The newspaper article quoted his neighbor, Roger Ruck, stating for the record that, I'll tell you one thing, and you can print it. These bastards won't get me the way they got Boyer. From now on, so far as I'm concerned, a dead, I'll delete the slur that he uses here, one, is a safe one. He finished with an ominous, they'll never get me. Evidently, plenty of the Mau Mau could read, for they did get him. The Ruck family massacre took the lives of Roger, his wife, and their six-year-old son. It reportedly involved one of their servants, who earlier in the day had been kind enough to carry the boy on his back after he had broken his leg. Within 48 hours of reporting the murders, more than 1,500 European settlers marched on Baring's seat of government, demanding immediate action. Jomo went on the record saying that he had expected to be dropped from the plane mid-flight and removed from the board. Instead, he was dropped in the middle of nowhere, specifically a small town known as Kapanguria. The British colonial government had decided to do the right thing and gave him a trial. This was an extremely risky move for a government that was between a rock and a hard place. For an acquittal would have surely created mayhem for the colony, as settlers would decry the verdict. 
paving the way for vigilantes to bring the nation to anarchy. At which point the government would be facing threats from the Mau Mau and the settlers. At the same time, a guilty verdict would likely be viewed by the Kikuyu and Mau Mau of the unfairness of so-called British justice. For they already held the belief that the British system of justice wasn't colorblind in its rulings. While you might be surprised that even having a trial was up in the air, there was nothing in the colonial charter that required Governor Barring to have one. In fact, most individuals who were caught up beneath the emergency declaration that turned Barring into a dictator never received a trial or a sentence. They were just admitted into the pipeline under the assumption of guilt, only allowed to walk free again once they had vomited up the poison of the Mau Mau sorcery, ignoring the reality that confessing their oaths meant ostracization from their people another rock and a hard place. Although they likely wanted a quick and easy verdict, they wanted to make sure that it at least appeared on the up and up, even though it wasn't. Work began right away on what was expected to be the trial of the century. In their efforts to build up a case against Kenyatta, which ultimately did not exist, the government gathered one and a half tons of documents, books, and paper from his home and offices. Within all of those pages, there was little that could be used to convict him. One of the most important decisions that a district attorney's office can take is what charges they intend to bring forth. Pick the wrong charges and a guilty man may walk free. Pick the right ones and you may even be able to convict an innocent man. The official charge against Kenyatta was levied as managing an unlawful society, i.e. fomenting or attempting to foment a revolution. The trial should have been in Nairobi. This is based upon the proper available courtroom infrastructure, where he resided, where he was arrested, and where he supposedly ran the Mau Mau from but the British feared public demonstrations that would make them look bad or threaten their authority. So they actually released Jomo Kenyatta from their custody in Kapenguria, only to re-arrest him a minute later. This time, since he had been arrested in Kapenguria, they would out of necessity have to hold the trial there. Rules are rules, after all. There were a couple of problems with this. Kapenguria, as a remote outpost in the middle of nowhere, didn't have a courthouse. The British had to build one for the trial. There was also no telephones or postal service anywhere in the area. The only road leading into the outpost was said to have been non-existent, making mass public demonstrations quite unlikely. If they did come, they wouldn't have anywhere to stay, as there was just one hotel and didn't have enough rooms for the legal defense team. All but the chief counsel had to find lodging with locals. The British press love a good story and definitely love to sensationalize a good villain. Kenyatta wasn't alone as the mastermind of the Mau Mau. He was being tried with five other individuals, a group whom the British press identified as the Kapenguria Six. Unable to find any incriminating evidence among the tons of papers that were seized was only considered a speed bump for the prosecution, 
as Governor Barring fabricated what was needed, paying witnesses to testify against the six men. We know that this happened because most of them have recanted their testimony and revealed the full extent of their bribes. Take star witness, Rousin Macharia, for instance. He testified that he was forced to take an oath in Kenyatta's own personal residence, which required him to strip naked and drink human blood. The British were quite confused on the oathing ceremonies at this point in time, which did occasionally involve smearing a goat's blood on their body, but not the vampire stuff that was said in the courthouse of Captain Guria. Macharia's testimony was the only direct source linking Kenyatta to the crimes that he was charged with. In 1958, Macharia revealed that he had been coached in his testimony and offered a university course in public administration in England, as well as protection for his family and a government job when he returned to Kenya in exchange for his testimony. He didn't need to write the tell-all book, The Truth About Jomo Kenyatta's Trial, for us to know that his testimony was invalid, as he literally took the first plane to London that was available after his testimony was complete. Even with the rigged testimony, the case appears to be pretty flimsy. But you don't have to have a rock star legal case if the judge is already in on the decision. And that is what the Brits had, a multi-million dollar closer coming out of the bullpen to ensure the win. His name was Ransley Thacker. Judge Thacker was flown in from England for this case and this case alone. For the small price of £20,000, he promised to convict the six and ensure that it looked legitimate. For the duration of the trial, the judge stayed at the Muthagir Club, the Moulin Rouge of Africa, the one with the parties, prostitutes, and cocaine. Despite the fix being in, Kenyatta mustered up the best legal defense team that he could. The team expected to lose, but felt that they could win on appeal that the trial was rigged. They just had to put up a fight and make sure that the record was clear of what was happening. Leading the defense team was Dennis Lowell Pritt, one of Britain's most able and notorious trial lawyers. He was also known for his courtroom theatrics and communist sympathies. His work on behalf of the Capenguria Six would eventually see him exiled from England. Pritt assembled a multi-racial defense team that included a Nigerian lawyer, a member of the Indian parliament, and three local Kenyan residents. The defense team's places of residence were routinely raided by police throughout the trial, forcing them to deal with sleep deprivation and the regular destruction of their paperwork. The intimidation continued each and every day along the path to the courthouse. Their work was made even more difficult by the fact that they were limited to just 10 minutes with their clients before and after each courtroom appearance. The defense hoped to drag out the proceedings in vain hope of bringing international attention and subsequent pressure against the government, but it was clear that Judge Thacker had little interest in staying abroad longer than he had to. 
After the Ruck family massacre occurred, it was clear that the colonial government was ready to be done with the trial. The murders, particularly of the young six-year-old boy, also colored how the press reported about the trial, as they began to refer to Kenyatta as a small-scale African Hitler. Thacker took a month to mull over the verdict, laying it on thick to ensure that no one caught on to his 20,000-pound heavier bag waiting for his return flight home. During this time, the Mau Mau crisis only grew exponentially worse, with the now literal war between the British Army and Land and Freedom Army accelerating. Plain evidence for all to see that the Mau Mau weren't led by the six, or if they had previously been led, they no longer needed them. The final verdict was rendered on April 8th, and the guilty verdict provided a measure of psychological relief to the local settlers, who despite all logic and reason now believed the Mau Mau would finally collapse without their Western-educated masterminds. Thus far, it is pretty easy to see Jomo Kenyatta as the protagonist of our story. His life has been turned upside down. He was the one man who could have done something about the crisis. He had put up the best defense possible in the face of impossible odds. But the hero's journey, the standard literary device that works to bring to life humanity's greatest adventure stories, requires setbacks along the way. Setbacks that will allow the protagonist the chance to learn something. Something that they will need to overcome in order to complete their journey. Kenyatta was given a chance to speak for the record before the verdict was read. It gives us some insight into who he was at this particular moment. He spoke of the discrimination in the government of his country while denying his involvement in directing the Mau Mau. Instead, he claimed that the Six's activities were only against injustice that was put upon the African people. He implored those who would listen to or read his remarks that if in trying to establish the rights of the African people, we have turned out to be what you say, Mau Mau, we are very sorry that you have been misled in the direction what we have done and what we shall continue to do is to demand the rights of the African people as human beings that they may enjoy the facilities and privileges in the same way as other people do. So yeah, apparently Kenyatta is fully fledged and didn't need a hero's journey. It turns out that rather than a journey that allows the protagonist to become a better person in order to overcome their challenges, Kenyatta would be sent on a journey that would only serve to bring out the worst in him. A journey to one of the most inhospitable prisons in the world. Thacker was sentencing the Kapanguria Six to Lalatay. In his closing remarks, Thacker dismissed the evidence presented by the defense, exonerating witnesses that established clear alibis and proof of their character. He then delivered this remarkable sentence saying, quote, You, Jomo Kenyatta, stand convicted of managing Mau Mau and being a member of that society. 
You have protested that your object has always been to pursue constitutional methods on the way to self-government for the African people and for the return of land that you say belongs to the African people. I do not believe you. It is my belief that soon after your long stay in Europe and when you came back to this colony, you commenced to organize this Mau Mau society, the object of which was to drive out from Kenya all Europeans, and in doing so, kill them if necessary. I am satisfied that the mastermind behind this plan was yours. Your Mau Mau society has slaughtered without mercy defenseless Kikuyu men, women, and children in hundreds and in circumstances which are revolting and better left undescribed. You let loose upon this land a flood of misery and unhappiness affecting the daily lives of all races in it, including your own people. You have much to answer for, and for that you will be punished. The corrupt judge then sentenced Kenyatta and the rest of the defendants to the maximum seven years' imprisonment with hard labor, to be followed by a lifetime of restriction. In other words, they were to live in isolation for the rest of their lives, never to experience freedom again. They were sent to the desert wilderness of Lalotang, a part of Kenya that averages less than one inch of rainfall per year. It was a lifeless place of sandstorms and hellish heat. Days were filled with work, generally of the nonsense sort, such as breaking enough rock into little pieces to fill six-gallon buckets, before then starting over again or digging a purposeless trench, only to have to fill it back in after it was done. Kenyatta was exempt from most of this work, as he was classified as only fit for light duties. He became the designated cook for the six, a comparatively easy task, though as fellow Kapanguria Six member Bildad Kagia later pointed out, in such a hot climate, cooking was more tormenting than hard labor. Kenyatta reflected on the radical shift in the quality of his life, saying that there are more subtle ways of breaking a widely traveled man whose life had been rich and dedicated and full of promise the psychology of nothingness, the impeccable correctness of prison discipline and Nama culture, like a slap of contempt, the absence of human contact, slow passages of remorseless days of dust and meaningless surroundings. There was nothing green, nothing cool, nothing creative, nothing demanding, nothing at all. He quickly became isolated from the rest of the Kapanguria Six, as the others wanted to use their time to discuss political plans and to articulate ideologies that they would use to remake the Kikuyu after they were released. They even created their own National Democratic Party with dutiful elected offices, a constitution, and even a party slogan of liberty, equality, and perhaps most important to these men, justice. But Jomo Kenyatta stayed out of all prison politics. This creates quite the paradox. For while Kenyatta fever was spreading throughout the country, the man himself was distancing himself from some of the true leaders of the Kikuyu and Mau Mau. 
this presumed martyr for Mau Mau wanted nothing to do with them. It wasn't that he had suddenly become apolitical. Instead, Kenyatta's political leanings were scarcely in line with Mau Mau teachings. One of the six, Paul Kagia's remembrance of the time, was that Kenyatta was not one of us in prison. He had married a woman whose father was a chief, and because of that, when we went to prison, he was often on the side of the conservatives and the government. I became the leader of the group in this place, though we were all disappointed. The camp commandant later separated him from us because of our arguments. One day, he and Shotara got into a fistfight, allegedly because Kenyatta was selling some of our food to the guards, but it was also because we didn't agree with his politics. Five and a half years into their seven-year sentences, five of the six were transferred from Lalatang to Lodwar, following international pressure after a letter detailed the inhumane conditions in the prison. In Lodwar, the remaining members of the Kapanguria Six were placed under house arrest. The conditions weren't any better. Kenyatta described his experience in Lodwar as hell on earth. The complex had a mere seven houses, one toilet, and just one water tank. There was one notable benefit of the move, however. Individuals were now allowed to petition and visit the imprisoned men. Among Kenyatta's visitors in 1961 was Danielle Arap Moy, his future successor. Historian W.O. Maloba tells us that the question of what was to become of Jomo Kenyatta was a hotly debated issue within all levels of the colonial government. He writes that the announcement of Kenyatta's detention in Lodwar created one of the most difficult problems to confront the British government between 1959 and 1961. Kenyatta's future was discussed and debated at most senior levels of the British government, with the Prime Minister, in the Cabinet, the Colonial Office, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and the security agencies. Kenyatta and his future in Kenya was also the subject of several spirited debates in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords during this period. In Kenya, no single issue since the declaration of the state of emergency created as much tension, produced more emotional utterances, or symbolized both hope and despair as the discussions about the future of Kenyatta. The longer that his detention continued, the more international public pressure threatened the government that had unjustly isolated him from his people. Democratic England even received official letters from the People's Republic of China, which condemned the criminal acts of British colonial rule and called for the immediate and unconditional release of Jomo Kenyatta and other patriotic leaders, for the Chinese people will always stand together with the people of Kenya and Africa in their struggle against colonialism and imperialism and promoting Afro-Asian solidarity and world peace. You know that you've messed up when the communist Chinese government is legitimately criticizing you on your human rights record. Among this international attention, Kenyatta began to receive invitations as a guest of honor. 
This included American newspapers that focused on African-American rights issues, as well as pan-African events. The celebrity cult of Kenyatta was in its infancy, but it was experiencing a state of profound growth. There were some who questioned the wisdom of continuing to hold on to the Kapanguria Six. The former Prime Minister of Colonial Nigeria, Sir Abukar Tawafa Balewa, was a leading voice of those who wanted Kenyatta freed. He was released, but not exonerated in August 1961, having spent nearly seven years in prison. He traveled to London with the expressed reason of advocating on the behalf of Kenyatta, telling his jailers that Jomo was no longer young and has served his sentence. Kenya had changed a lot through the Mau Mau crisis. With it ended, shouldn't Kenyatta's sentence also end? Perhaps most compelling, however, was the thought expressed that while he was in prison, no one could tell what his thoughts and plans were, whereas if he were released, people would soon find out what he was thinking. Maloba reveals that the British response was to continue to stick to the party line, that the release of Kenyatta would inevitably provoke bloodshed in Kenya. Nigeria's Prime Minister left London empty-handed, but tossed a thought grenade at the colonial office as he left, telling them that what happened in Kenya would affect the whole African continent. If relations at the time of independence were good, then all would go well. But there was always the example of Guinea, where the French had played their hand badly to serve as a warning. By this point, Governor Evelyn Baring had moved on, politely sacked for his role in the cover-up of the Hola massacre and his ineptness at dealing with Mau Mau. The new governor was Sir Patrick Renison, and despite growing international pressure, he was firmly committed to continuous detainment of Kenyatta, denouncing him by saying in a 1960 speech that Jomo Kenyatta was the recognized leader of the non-cooperation movement which organized Mau Mau with its foul oathing and violent aims, has been declared an unlawful society. A revolution of fearful oaths and fearful deeds whose terrorism, savagery, and bestiality shocked the world. He was convicted of managing that unlawful society and being a member of it. He appealed to the Supreme Court and the Privy Council. In these three courts, his guilt was established and confirmed. He finished up with the ominous line, Here was the African leader to darkness and death. When his speech failed to settle the issue, he pivoted to remind the community that settlers had initially favored hanging him from a tree. Kenya's civil service still feared this leader of darkness, with Renison believing that releasing Kenyatta would render all European confidence in him forfeit, with global repercussions affecting the whole economy of the colony. Thus, even if civil disobedience and violence may occur, the policy of detainment was deemed to be the best course forward for Kenya. 
His eventual release was secured in part because of the Kenyatta personality cult that had been created by the sensationalized trial. The Kenyatta cult, as it was referred to, was growing in non-white Commonwealth countries, threatening far-reaching portions of the British Empire. Pakistan and India, die-hard enemies in 1961, jointly petitioned England for the release of Jomo Kenyatta. The pressure was turned up at home by African ministers within Renaissance government who pointed out that the longer Kenyatta was restricted, the greater became the myth, and the more his supporters would excuse atrocities and horrors of Mau Mau. If he were allowed out, he might well prove an extinct volcano, but until he was released there could be no political stability. In fact, reports coming out of Lodwar suggested that Kenyatta's health was rapidly deteriorating, suggesting that he was indeed closer to extinction than eruption. Another member of the government told him that to avoid sacrificing the African ministers, Kenyatta should be released, thereby depriving the opponents of the new regime of their main weapon. The Kenyatta cult was best described as the belief that Jomo Kenyatta was the leader and inspiration of the Mau Mau. There were even portions of the society that believed he was still directing Mau Mau from behind bars. Renison's reluctance to release his prisoner came from the fear that Mau Mau violence might be renewed by this man whom they believed held an almost hypnotic sway over the Kikuyu but he ultimately was released. The straw that broke Renison's back were the first colony-wide elections of 1961. The British had been continually adding elements of democratic rule to the government. This time, local parties were able to run. Two parties emerged, the Kenya African National Union Party, or KANU, and the Kenya African Democratic Union. The KANU championed the freedom of Kenyatta as their number one political priority. They dominated the 61 elections and refused to take their seats until Jomo was released. Seeking to prove their steadfast belief in democratic rule, Renison began the process of releasing his most infamous prisoner. The settlers and the colonial government had to be terrified when Jomo Kenyatta, now 70 years old, stepped up to the podium for the April 1961 press conference that marked his return to the free world. He stood in front of the microphone for a long time, wearing his trademark leather jacket with a gaunt face and now sunken eyes. There must have been a huge sigh of relief as Kenyatta finally spoke, saying, I have been greatly misrepresented by some of you, but today I hope you will stick to the truth and refrain from writing sensationalist stories about me. He went on to call the charges against him a pack of lies, and then borrowed from the words of Jesus, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Next, he channeled Mahatma Gandhi with the thought that I have never been a violent man. My whole life has been anti-violence. If I am free, I will continue to do so. He declared Uruhu, 
the Kishwali term that would become the slogan for all Africans in Kenya. Freedom. Eventually, the slogan would become Ruhu na Kenyatta. Freedom and Kenyatta. Showing that the cult of personality had survived prison. Independence would follow a year and a half later on December 11, 1963. Jomo Kenyatta will be elected as that nation's first leader. He had remained a true protagonist in Kenya's story. In our next episode, we'll look at his policies and their effect on his country, as well as the cult of Kenyatta, examining how his near decade of imprisonment under difficult, if not impossible, conditions affected his rule, the end of Jomo's hero journey.